Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. Today we're beginning a brand new sermon series called the I Am series, and we're going to be talking out of John the whole time. So if you have your Bibles, you can mark the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be in John chapter 6, and we talk about all the time being a church that exists to connect people to Jesus for life change. And it's pretty important if we're going to be that kind of church that we know who Jesus is, not just who we think he is, not who people say he is, but who did he say that he is? And so we're going to look at that in this series, and I'm going to pray for us uh, that God would transform us. It's a seven-week series. There's seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to walk through that, and on Easter Sunday is going to be the last one. I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen. And the question for us ultimately as we walk through all of these is going to be, does our life communicate that this is true, that we really believe these things, not just do we know them? And so I'm going to pray uh, that God will put these in our hearts and we'd be different people in seven weeks. Father, thank you for gathering with us. Thank you for being present. You promised your presence that you go with us as we make disciples. And Father, I pray that we'd become greater disciples, we'd make more disciples as a result of the things that we'll learn from your word over these next seven weeks. I pray as we focus on the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, you do what you talk about doing in 1 Corinthians 3. Change us from one degree of glory to another that we'd reflect your son, Jesus Christ. That as we reflect on him, that we'd become what we behold, that we behold the glory of your son, Jesus, so we become more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his precious and holy name I pray because of what I believe he would pray if he were here. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this series, I want to ask you, have you ever watched a movie where there's a bomb scene? And by a bomb scene, I mean, you know, those moments where they've got to decide which wire to cut. Is it going to be the green wire or the red wire or the black wire? Why are there three wires? Why can't there be two wires? 50-50 chance, right? Like, and you're watching whether it's, you know... Jack Bauer or, or James Bond or whoever it is, you know, Mission Impossible. They're going to save the world. They're going to save a building. They're at least going to save their own lives. And isn't it convenient? Have you ever thought to yourself, do bad guys really do this, that there's a timer there? You know, the timer's counting down five, four, three, and then they clip the wire and it's intense in that moment. I was watching a movie this week that was a little bit more realistic. It was called Hurt Locker. And if you've seen that movie or not, some of you are not in your heads. You've seen that movie. It won several Academy Awards. And it's about a bomb squad, a three-man team, that goes into Iraq during a war there. And their responsibility is to defuse bombs. And there's all kinds of different scenarios. Suicide bombers, uh, they go and investigate after a bomb's already gone off, what happened. Uh, There's car bombs. There's this one scene where there's this car parked out in front of what appears to be a government building. And the team comes in, and the main character is a guy named William James. William James is kind of radical. He's somewhat of a maverick, kind of does his own thing, uh, seems to be fearless. And he comes walking up, and he's wearing a bomb suit, which is, you know, big heavy vest, and they've got this helmet on. And he walks up, and there's a security guard that's clearing this building out of all the people. And the security guard says, there's a bomb. He says, how do you know? He says, well, there's a car illegally parked, and the back end's sinking on it. He goes, well, did you check it out? And the guy looks at him like, me? You got the suit on. He doesn't say that. And he's like, and it doesn't just say illegally parked. It's like, and we're in Iraq. Like as you're watching it, you're like, yeah, there probably is a bomb in there. As Sergeant James is walking to the car, a sniper from some distance away shoots the car in the gas tank. The whole thing turns into this blazing inferno and you're just waiting for it to explode. He keeps walking towards the car. He takes a fire extinguisher. He puts the fire out and then he goes around to the back of the car and he starts kicking the trunk. The trunk pops open. He walks away takes his helmet off, takes the bomb suit off. His partner, who's hiding behind the cement wall, says, what are you doing? 
He says, there's enough explosives in there to send us all to Jesus. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die comfortable. And so he goes over to the car and he starts working. He finds these wires. The wires go through the whole car. And there's no timer. And this isn't the kind of movie where they, they clip the wire with two seconds left. Because in a couple scenes before that, the only reason Sergeant James is there is because the guy that was doing his job the week before died in a bomb. And that's already happened in this movie. And so as you're watching it, you see him digging wire through this car. The music starts getting more intense. And you start realizing it's not on a timer. There's guys that are watching him. One guy's videotaping. They see him. There's three other guys up on a tower. They start signaling to one another to set the bomb off. The music gets more intense. And I'm not going to tell you what happens. You can go watch the movie. But the reason why, thank you, I'll take booze. Tomatoes are welcome as well. And everybody who's involved with the movie Hurt Locker, you're welcome because you may get some more people this evening. But the reason why we get tense as the movie gets intense is because the stakes are so high. You know in that moment, if he cuts the wrong wire, or if he doesn't find the fuse, or if he doesn't pick the right, if he moves the right, like he takes the stereo out at one point, the windshield wipers start going, I was like, ugh, thought the whole thing was going to blow. And then he's going to die, and everyone around him's going to die, and maybe the people in the building are going to die, and it's catastrophic. Now, here's the deal. Here's why I'm telling you this today. We begin this new sermon series on the I am's of Jesus. It would be easy, especially if you're a regular churchgoer, to come in, learn these seven statements, know more information about God, and it's kind of academic, not because you're trying to pass a test, but just you just learn more information. But we've got to realize that what we're talking about in this series is such high stakes, if we get it wrong, it's catastrophic. And I don't just mean in a sermon, in our lives. He says, I am the bread of life. If he's not the bread of life, then where are we going for satisfaction? Anywhere and everywhere but Jesus. He says, I am the light of the world. That's the one we'll talk about next week. If he's not the light of the world, we're trapped in darkness. We're stuck in our sin. We're without hope. He says, and the last one we'll look at, I am the resurrection and the life. The Bible itself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if we're wrong about the resurrection, it's not that we just live a good moral life in spite of what some philosophers say. The Bible says that we're to be most pitied among all people and all of humanity. Not just because we're wrong about the resurrection, but because then we've spent our lives proclaiming things that are not true about God to the entire world, and we're going to stand before God one day. The circumstances are, are much higher, higher than with, you know, green wire, red wire, white wire. These are eternal. And so I want to ask you this question, and this is the question for the entire series for all seven weeks. There's a, a situation where Jesus asked this question one time to one of his followers, Peter, they're in Capernaum. There's a lot of options in Capernaum. There's a lot of false gods. And he says, who do people say that I am? And there's a lot of statements, as you could see from the video that played before I came up here. There's a lot of things that people say about Jesus. And then Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And that's the question I want us to focus on as we come into these statements. Today, the bread of life. Who do you, do you think he's the bread of life? Not just with your mind, but with your life. Is Jesus the bread of life? And you answer that as we walk through this passage. It's in John chapter 6. We're going to be in the Gospel of John through this whole series. These seven statements all come from the Gospel of John. If you don't know who John is, John is one of Jesus, maybe Jesus' closest friend on earth. He's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And, and he's not bashful about why he writes the Gospel of John. He tells us why. He says, there's a whole bunch of miracles I could have written down. He only writes down seven miracles. 
There are a lot of different witnesses that he could give of people testifying that who Jesus is, he gives seven witnesses. There are seven I am statements we're going to look at. All of those things are written down for one reason. It's in John chapter 20. So before we go to John 6, let me read you John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I wonder what those were. But these are written so that, here's the reason, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what you find in John, through these seven witnesses, through these seven I am statements, through these seven different signs, through everything that's written down about Jesus, we're seeing who he is. So if we're going to see who he is, then ultimately the point is that we believe in him, and that by believing in him, it transforms our lives here and now, not just one day when we get to heaven. And so if you go through John, what you see is all these statements about who Jesus is. In fact, if you just glimpse through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, let me read you some of the statements you'll see in John chapter 1. Just just John chapter 1. Jesus is the Word. He is himself God. He is face to face with the Father. He is creator of all things. He is light and life to every human being. He is the rejected one. He is the received one. He is the word who became fully human. He is the one and only son of the Father. He is the one full full of grace and truth. He is the one who made God known to us. His name is Jesus. He is God. And that's what the book continues to go on to testify to over and over in our immediate context in John chapter 6. It's just before the Passover feast. That means in the synagogue, all the Jewish people have been listening and learning about the Passover. The Passover is a miracle that God did, the salvation event of the Old Testament, where the death angel passed over the homes of all the Jewish people and didn't kill the firstborn child. It was pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then when God led them into the land, he fed them with miraculous bread from heaven called manna. They didn't know what it was. Manna means in Hebrew, what is it? There's some great irony in that because what John chapter 6 is all about as they're learning in their synagogues about the Passover, it's all about bread. It starts off in the first 15 verses, if you read it on your own, of the feeding of the 5,000. They don't understand the feeding of the 5,000. There's the irony. What is it? And so they try to make Jesus king by force. Jesus does a private miracle, which I know some of you in here need a private miracle. God, Jesus does a private miracle just for his 12 disciples, and he walks on water. They end up on the other side of the water. And then the people are coming because they want more food, and they don't understand what the miracle was all about. The miracle precedes the message. Oftentimes we focus on the miracle. It's supposed to point us to the message. We're going to focus on the message, which talks about him being the bread of life. So John chapter 6, I'll start reading in verse 25 to give us the, the context. But verse 35 is really where we're focused today. This is when they found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? (laughs) All they knew was that he didn't get in the boat. Now there's only one boat. Now he's there. They didn't see the walking on water stuff. Jesus doesn't answer their question. Look at what he says. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly. That's kind of a, a bold statement, John. He doesn't really answer them. Listen to what he says. I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. What about the whole how did you get here? That's what we asked you. Look at what he says. He's giving them the message of the miracle. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We have to work for it, but you're going to give it to us? What? For on him, God the Father has set his seal. When they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's a key word in the Gospel of John. The word believe is written 98 times. I dare you to go through and see how many times is it written as a noun 
How many times is it written as a verb? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? <laughs> he just fed 5,000 people yesterday. Now they're asking for a sign. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, which is hint, hint, Jesus. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly. So we got this twice in these few verses. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, pay attention. It's going to get good. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus answered them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so here what we have in this passage is the miracle comes before the message. In fact, it's interesting, if you read through John, John doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. He uses the word sign continually. What does a sign do? You all know what a sign does, even just driving here. If you didn't just listen to the lady on the GPS, on the way, you follow the signs because the signs point you to a destination. The sign is not the destination itself. The sign points you to a destination. Now you can get the sign wrong. I think we've all probably done that before. I do, whenever I go to the grocery store, I do that. My wife will send me to the grocery store. Rarely, honey, do you ever send me to the grocery store for milk or eggs? Like she sends me to the grocery store for things that I don't know what you do. Like I know there's lots of people here that do different jobs. If any of you have the job of making signs at the supermarket, can you be the first person that's ever made a sign for like vanilla extract? Because that is never up there. Like when I walk in, it's like diapers. I'm looking for vanilla extract, napkins, soda. I don't know. Maybe it's by the ketchup. So I'll go wandering down an aisle. It's not by the ketchup. Then I'll say to some lady, do you know where the vanilla extract is? Try aisle seven. I go to aisle seven. There's a guy standing there. I can't find vanilla extract, even if it's there. He says, why don't you go back by the ketchup? I'm like, I was just there. And so even though there's a sign, I don't understand the signs. I'm not getting to the destination I'm supposed to get to. There's been a sign in this passage. They don't get it because now they're trying to make Jesus king by force. He feeds 5,000 people, so much so, there's 12 baskets full left over afterwards. He started with a little kid's lunch. They got more than when they started. It's an amazing miracle, but people don't get what it's about. And so you see what ends up happening. If you've got a Bible, look back a couple verses in John chapter 6 to verses 14 and 15. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, Jesus, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Before you read the next line, don't you think Jesus should be happy about this? They want to make him king. Isn't, didn't he come to be a king? I mean, I know that he was born in a manger in his humble circumstance, but when you remember when he dies on the cross, they nailed king of the Jews above his name. Why isn't Jesus excited about this? You see, some of us, we want to make Jesus king. You may have seen, even in this election that just happened in 2020, you know, you didn't want Trump, you didn't want Biden, so you came up with a sign, Jesus 2020. You know, you see these signs? Maybe you had them. I don't know what your motive was. Maybe God used that so you could lead your neighbors to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe you're just trying to honor Jesus. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Jesus doesn't want you to come and make him king. Jesus is king. He doesn't need you to make him king. He's the king of kings. There doesn't need to be an election. He's already got that throne. He's already sovereignly ruling the universe, holding everything together by the power of him. 
And so you don't get to come to Jesus with an agenda for his life. He comes to you with an agenda for yours. His agenda for yours is to bring his father glory. It's not political. It's not material. And that's the problem for these people. They wanted to make Jesus king so they could fulfill their, so he could fulfill their agenda. Their agenda was political. They were in a terrible political system. They were being dominated by Rome. It wasn't quite slavery, but it was close because of the taxation, because of the ungodly rulership. And Jesus didn't come with that mission. And so he didn't fulfill their political desires. And he didn't come with a mission. He just fed them the day before. So they're thinking, well, just keep feeding us this bread. Keep giving, keep meeting our physical needs. And Jesus is going, it's so, I am more than that. And what Jesus is communicating to us through him being the bread of life, is that he is a king beyond your imagination. And that's our main point today, our only point today, really, that Jesus is a king beyond your imagination. And we talk about a verse here at this church oftentimes in Ephesians chapter 3 that God can do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or beyond what we could think or request, depending on which translation you read. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and verse 21. Say now to him, talking to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's true. Oftentimes we look at that passage and we talk about what Jesus can do, what God can do in us. And then the passage talks about that. But here's the reality. It's not just what Jesus can do. It's what God has done through Jesus. Just think about Jesus. Talk about being beyond what we could ask or imagine. Let me ask you this. Like, think about this. And this will be harder for some of us. Maybe you grew up in church. Imagine you've never been to Sunday school. Imagine you've never heard a sermon. Imagine you've never heard the name Jesus. There are people like that in this world. But you know there's a problem. You know that, that God is holy and he's righteous and that we're sinful, but he wants a relationship with us. How are you going to solve that problem? You would never dream up what God does. You would never, ever, in a, in a bazillion years, you would never think to yourself, I know, he'll send his son, because the three are one, right? Because you got that figured out. And he's going to send his son, his son who is God, is going to be born of a virgin. Would you have thought of that? No, just so you know, you wouldn't have. He's going to be tempted in every way that you were tempted last week. Huh? That sounds offensive. That's what the Bible says. He's tempted in every way just as you're tempted. So whatever temptations you face this week, he's going to be tempted with that. He's going to know what it's like to experience the frustration of a human body. He's going to know what it's like to learn. He's going to know what it's like to be limited physically. He's God. We would never fathom this. But he's never going to sin. He's going to live a perfect life, and then we're going to murder him. The people that he came to save, he's, he, those people are going to kill him, and he's going to use the greatest sin in all of humanity to save humanity from their sin. You and I would never even think that up. So God's continually and always doing beyond what we could ask or imagine. And then after he's dead, three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. That's great news. You and I would have never thought of that. Because Jesus is a king beyond what you and I could ever imagine. See, the problem for the people in this passage is they're coming to Jesus and they think they have an idea of what kind of king he should be. And he should be the king that meets their needs. He should be a king that follows their agenda. And so they come to him and Jesus says to them when they ask the question, how'd you get here? He says, let me tell you about your motives. Can you imagine having that conversation with Jesus? You come to Jesus with some question you think is a great question. And then he doesn't answer it. Instead, he tells you about your heart. 
That might be scary. Hey, Jesus, uh, maybe you're from the seminary. Calvinism or Arminianism? Let me tell you about your materialism. <laughs> hey, Jesus, uh, should I go to this church or that church? Uh, let me tell you why you're not really worshiping me. You're just praising me with your lips. Hey, Jesus, should we do this? Or what kind of capitalism or socialism? Hey, let me tell you about your lack of generosity. Like, what if he just went to our hearts? And so these people come, they're like, how did you get here? You don't have a boat. Um, you're only coming here because you want me to feed you. And can you really blame them? If you just ate the day before, and I'm going to tell you what, the Bible doesn't say this, but Jesus makes good bread, okay? Did you read the story in John chapter 2 where he takes the water and turns it into wine? And then they come out and they're like, man, why did they give us all that cheap wine at the beginning? Let me tell you, I don't know what kind of wine Jesus made. It wasn't the $8 bottle, okay? Because people came out and they're like, this is liquid dessert. This is amazing. The best wine at the end. And so what kind of bread do you think he made? Like, it's not, it's not Ezekiel bread, all right? Have you ate that stuff? That is nasty. <laughs> not wonder bread. And it's chewy, but it's, gro it's cheap. Like, Jesus made some good bread. I don't know. It's probably like cinnamon rolls that are healthy. Okay, that's probably what he made. And so they're going, we want more of that. And Jesus is going, you don't have any idea. You're just thinking physical. I've got way more for, I'm beyond what you could ask or imagine. And isn't that how God always is? And God always doing stuff different than we thought. Whether it's your life, whether you read it in the Bible, we, we do chapel uh, once a month for our staff. Our, our thought process on that is, as a staff, we're trying to connect our church to Jesus for life change, but we don't want to get, we don't want our job to become a job. And so we want to stay connected to Jesus and we'll have different speakers come. In February, we had Matt Nyhoff, one of our elders, come, and he was speaking. He was sharing from a passage of Scripture I hadn't read in a long time. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. I don't even read 2 Kings chapter 6, but it's about the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, the more popular, but Elisha. Um, and Elisha, what ends up happening in his life is that he keeps telling the king of Israel what one of their uh, opponents is going to be doing, Syrian king. And the Syrian king is like, somebody must be a traitor in this army. What's going on? And one of his guys says, no. It's a man of God, Elisha. He goes, well, let's go get him. We're going to arrest him. They send an army to go arrest Elisha. His assistant gets up one morning, comes out. There's an army out there. Comes back in, says, Elisha, there's this army out there. We're in trouble. And he's like, no, no, just relax, buddy. Um, greater is he who's with us than, than those that are coming against us. And it's like, oh, that's nice Jesus talk, but there's an army out here. And, and then Elisha prays and says, will you open this guy's eyes? And so the assistant goes out and he can see an army that's like chariots that are on fire, bigger than the other army. What do you think happens next? Don't answer, just think in your mind, because everybody's probably got a thought. It's not what you thought. If you don't know the story, what happens next is you would think that then the fiery chariots would overtake the army that's there, or somehow the eyes of those people would be open so they'd see the fiery chariots and they would take off. None of that happens. Instead, what happens is Elisha prays, God, I pray that those people, he prayed that his assistant could see. He says, I pray that they can't see. So these people are blinded. And then he leads them into Samaria. And then he destroys them. Nope, that never happens in the story. They have a meal together. And then the Syrians leave and they never come back. Who would have thought of that? I would have never thought of that. But that's what happens because that's what God does. And then Matt asked us as a staff, he said, where, where are some other places in the Bible or in your life have you seen God do things that you would have never thought of. And I just thought of the, the amazing reconciliation in the book of Genesis between Joseph and his brothers. 
And what happens, Joseph, if you don't know, is the first guy that's ever human trafficked and he's sold into slavery by his brothers. Abandoned, abused, they've caused the greatest pain in his life. He forgives them, but then their dad dies. And when dad dies, there's this tension. Now he might destroy us. Now we might get vengeance. But do you know what happens? Read Genesis chapter 50. Is that God so transformed Joseph's heart that he sees that God's so big, he can even use their sin to do a great work in his life. And so the greatest pain in his life, he then views through the sovereignty of God and realizes that God was using that and says that God was, you meant to hurt me. God used it for good. Not only do I forgive you, I'm going to take care of you. But not only am I going to take care of you, you read Genesis chapter 50, verse 21, he says, I'm going to take care of your kids because God does abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. You think about it in your own life. Have you had an experience where you, you thought God was going to do something or you saw how things should go and then God did something totally different? I was thinking this week about uh, my wife and I were in, in Madagascar, Africa a few, few years ago with one of our missionaries. Missionaries doing incredible work. Literally has planted over 10,000 churches in, in Madagascar. We sent one couple out there. God started to do a multiplication work at another couple there that's discipling the leaders of those churches now. And so we got the invitation to go out. They're going out to places like there's no road to get there, okay? And so you show up and it's like, we're going to have church. It's a tree, goats and chickens are walking through and all the stuff they drop behind and we're sitting in it and having church. Well, when my wife comes, they basically treat her like Jesus because they, she knows medical stuff. And so she's telling them, they're bringing all their sick people, all this like impossible stuff to fix, babies that have Down syndrome, like just all kinds of stuff. And this one guy comes up and he's got this finger that's huge. Uh, he burned it on a rope working out in the field. It's swollen and he says the doctor in town that he had gone to told him they had to, to take it off. And my wife looks at me and she goes, I think it's gonna get septic, he might die. What do we do? And we're out in the bush. I said, cut it off. And the lawyer that was with us was like, you are not cutting his finger off like he was there. One of our elders, J.D. Henserling's like, I was like, well, somebody here has a machete, I'm sure. And the guy's gonna die, I'm just trying to save his life. Like, I'm not just like, like let's just cut the finger. Like, I'm just thinking, we'll singe it, like, we'll do something, whatever's the right thing. Cut the guy's finger off. He said, how about we pray, pastor? I was like, okay, okay, we'll pray. <laughs> so we pray. Pray for this guy and talk to the next people, talk to the next people. Didn't talk to that guy again. But two weeks after we were back, our missionary calls us up. He said, remember that guy you prayed for his finger? I'm like, yeah. He says, he said he went back to his hut. His finger started popping and God healed his finger. And then he came to Jesus. He was a witch doctor, burned all of his witchcraft books, is now a leader in the church there. It's a few years ago. So wait, 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 I was trying to save the guy's life. I thought this will save the guy's life. We'll cut his finger. If I had just done the physical, what would happen with the spiritual? See, God's always at work doing beyond what we could ask or imagine. Somebody on our staff said, what about Lazarus? When we raise Lazarus from the dead, think about that story. We'll get to that when we talk about the resurrection and life. Do you know they tried to talk Jesus out of that miracle? Have you read that story? He's roll away the stone. He's going to stink. One of his sisters, like his sister's like, he's stunk his whole life. Of course he's going to stink. No, he's been dead for four days. He's going to stink. But do you know when, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, read the story. No one's complaining about how he smells. I bet Jesus who makes good wine and Jesus who makes good bread, just to mess with his sisters, probably made Lazarus smell the best he'd ever smelled in his whole life. Because Jesus does beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And he's just done that in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. A little boy's lunch, a little sack, and they're walking away with baskets full of food afterwards. Twelve, by the way, enough for each one of the apostles to carry. And then they get in a boat, and Jesus comes walking on water to them. The crowd doesn't get to see that. Do you know what he's showing? He's showing, I'm, 
I'm beyond what you could ever ask or imagine, beyond what you could ever dream. And when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying a lot of things to them, at least three life-changing truths. The first one is this. He's saying he is their salvation. Jesus is your salvation. Because he says in the statement, not just that I am bread, he says I am the bread, and he noticed of life, verse 35, in John chapter 6, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Wrapped in that statement are life-changing truths. First of all, he's declaring himself as salvation because he's, he's saying that he is God. Before you even get to the bread of life, the, the statement, I am, would communicate to Jewish listeners would understand this. They're studying the Passover in the synagogue right now. So they're just, it's like we just read these verses and then they come and Jesus is going, do you see how this is being fulfilled? Do you see how this is happening? And he, when he says, I am, they know he's declaring himself divine. They know he's making a declaration. I can give you salvation because I am God. What he's pointing back to is a story in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, if you're not familiar with that, there's a guy named Moses, and there's this burning bush that never stops burning, and that's not the amazing part. The amazing part is God's voice comes out of it. And the story of how Moses even got there is because Moses had the right passion, expressed it in the wrong way, and it caused great pain. Some of you, that's your story. Right passion, wrong way, great pain. He saw a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, and he's going to step in, right passion. He wants to stop the suppression, the slavery. He does it in the wrong way, murders the Egyptian. And then he does what we oftentimes do with our sin. He hides it, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like many of us. In shame, he hides his sin. And then he's on the run, and he's living for 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are leaders. There's a leadership lesson there that we won't get into today, but we could talk about is that oftentimes he spends 40 years on the backside of the wilderness in preparation for what he's going to do. He's probably the greatest leader in all of human history. He spends 40 years in obscurity because God takes him where he's going to lead people before he leads the people there. There's the leadership lesson. God will oftentimes take you as a leader where he wants you to lead other people before he leads those people there. And he does that with Moses. And one day in that obscurity, on his own, unexpected, a day just like any other day, he comes across a bush that's a burning bush, and it's God speaking to him and saying, I want you to lead my people. And after he expresses all of his insecurities and all the reasons why God's plan's not the best plan, then he says, well, if they ask me who sent me, what should I say? In other words, God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. In other words, that's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency. I'm not defined by anything out there I define everything. I am, and it's present all the time. He's in the past. He's in the future. He's in the present. He's always there. I am self-sufficient. It's why Revelation says he, he's the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's who he is. And when Jesus says here, I am, he's saying, I am God. And I'm not just bread. I'm the bread of life. And what I'm giving you is eternal life, abundant life. That's what he's offering as his salvation. But it's not the sign that you look at. It's the destination, me. I am your salvation. I say, well, how do we get this? They still don't understand. They're like, well, it sounds like incredible bread. What do we do? Go back to the passage. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're trapped in religion so much they think it's based on their performance. What do we do? What do we do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. Believe in him who was sent. Believe in me is what he's saying. Believe in 
I am, I am the bread of life. I am God. I am your salvation. You've got to believe in me. Okay, well, what does that mean? Because a lot of us have ideas about what belief is. Let me tell you something. Everyone who existed during Jesus' life believed that he did the miracles that he did. They said all kinds of things about him. Some people said he was Satan. Some people said he was the Messiah and everything in between. But they didn't doubt that he healed lepers, fed 5,000, walked on water. Like, it happened. It was true. They believed it. In fact, many people even believed that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. But they weren't believers. Because there's a difference in believing facts and placing your trust in someone. And the Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 19, you believe that God is one. That's great. Even the demons believe that. You can have great theology. In fact, if you read the New Testament, the best theology in the New Testament comes from demons. Whenever Jesus shows up and there's a demon there, you're the Messiah, you're the Lord, don't destroy us. They're always making professions of how amazing Jesus is. They're the ones who get it before everybody else gets it. Let me tell you something else. There will not be a demon in heaven. So when Jesus talks about believing, he's not talking about knowing facts and agreeing with facts. He's talking about trust. What does it look like to trust? Trust is a relationship. And that's what Jesus is wanting, is trust. In fact, John chapter 1, it says this, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's so important that you've got to get the identity of Jesus right. I read a story this week about a homeless guy who died in Wyoming. But the catch of the story is that he was a millionaire. He just didn't know it. His name is Timothy Gray, if you want to look him up. And he was found underneath a bridge in Wyoming, frozen to death, had a very thin jacket on. Uh, the bridge, they don't know that he was living there, but they believe that he was. Uh, many homeless people would set up camp there. Some kids found him, found his body while they were sledding. And um, Lynn later identified him as the great-grandson of a former U.S. senator who was known as one of the copper kings of Montana and had a $300 million estate. When he died, he left it to his kids. Timothy Gray was adopted by one of his daughters into their family. And when his mom died, she left him $19 million. But he didn't know it. They couldn't find him. They hired a private investigator, kind of like we send out missionaries. Went looking for him, couldn't find him, never heard this information, and he died. The tragedy of the story is that death, at least at that moment in his physical life, could have been prevented if he had just known what was being offered to him because of his adoption. Let me read you that John chapter 1 verse again. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, But all who receive him, who believe in his name, give the right to become children of God. Do you know what it is called when, when you're not in a family and then you become part of a family and, and they make you their child? It's adoption. That's what God wants to do with you. And he's offering you an eternal inheritance. But you must believe in order to receive the inheritance. The way that you become part of God's family is by placing your trust not in your works, which is what the people in the passage were struggling. What do we do? What are the works of God? What should I do? Jesus says, here's the work of God. Believe. In other words, put your trust in me. If you want salvation, the way you receive salvation is through belief what Jesus Christ and his works on the cross, not your own works. Some of you have done that. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, you can do that today. And Jesus is not only our salvation, though. He's our security in our salvation. Jesus isn't just your salvation. Jesus is your security. Look what he says in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Okay. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever does come to me, I will never cast out. I'll keep you. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, the Father. And, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, a lot of Christians leave, live insecure Christian lives. There are people in this room that if at a moment ago I had said to you, do you want to trust Christ as your Savior? You've already done that, maybe 10 times. You would have done it because you're just not sure. Or maybe you've done some sin, and maybe you need to just redo it again. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you believe in me, I keep you secure in that belief. Some of us function like it was Jesus' job to save us. It's our job to stay saved. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Believe. If you believe, if you trust, I got you. And I got you till the end. In fact, the Bible guarantees that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, you can look that up on your own later. It says that at the point of salvation, God gives us the Holy Spirit, which is a seal, a guaranteeing us until the day of redemption. So in other words, in order for you to be a Christian and then not be a Christian anymore, it would require God to break his promise. And God doesn't do that. Say, so, well, what if I did this? And what if I did that? Are you, do you trust him? In the moment of your sin, you're not trusting him. But do you trust him? Over, what about people that walk away? There's some people that walk away and they come back. They're called prodigals. There's some people that depart from the faith. And John writes another book later. In 1 John chapter 2, you can look this up on your own. Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, those people were never part of us. We looked at Judas last week. It's possible to be around Jesus, to be close to Jesus, to be associated with Jesus, to be busy for Jesus, not to be connected to Jesus. So there are people in this room right now that think they're Christians. That are not, and their life will show us that when they leave the faith. That's sad, but it's true. But if you've really believed, it's not your job to keep yourself secure. God keeps you secure. That's what he's saying here. He's like, I got you. I don't lose anybody who comes to me. Everybody that God's given me that's come to me, the Father's given to me, I keep them. And I'm going to raise them up on the last day. This is all work of Jesus doing. It's not, here's what you go do. So you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're secure in your salvation. That should bring you great peace because God's providing you security. According to many social psychologists, to have security is required before you can experience intimacy. There's one guy that's famous. It's debated amongst academic circles, and I'm not saying that Jesus was teaching this, but his name's Maslow, had written a theory in the 40s and 50s, and I think we have a copy here of Maslow's uh, process here of basic needs, and what he's saying is in order to get to the next spot in life, these other things have to be met. And he puts security, safety as the second thing. So food, water, warmth, that's got to be taken care of. And the next thing is safety and security. Because let me tell you something. You're not thinking about your work goals if you're in a car accident and some semi is bearing, bearing down on you. Like you're, all you want to do is survive at that moment. And so if your safety and security is not taken care of, you can't even think about the other things that are higher on that pyramid, relationship and intimacy. And that's what God wants for you. And what he's saying is, I've got the security covered. And when you believe, trust that, then you can move into the intimacy. I was reading uh, about a study this week of orphans after World War II. After World War II, uh, there were a lot of orphans that were overwhelming, actually, to the Allied troops that were there. And so what they did is they came up with a system of different camps that were going to take care of these kids, and they actually did a great job taking care of the kids, loving them, meeting their needs. But what they found with these kids is that they still struggled with sleeping, even though they were cared for and they were fed meals every day on time at the same time, consistent, like everything they knew to do to, to develop and care for these kids that had lost their parents, they were doing it, but they wouldn't sleep until one psychologist came up with this idea 
Let's give them all a loaf of bread that they can hold while they're sleeping. And what they found was it dramatically changed their rest. What Jesus is saying here is, I am your bread. I am the bread of life. I give you security. Those kids not only knew that they had been taken care of that day, but they'd be taken care of in the future. And Jesus is saying to you the same thing. Not only to take care of your salvation, I'm going to take care of you and preserve you through this process. I am your salvation. I am your security. And then ultimately what I want you to experience is I am your satisfaction. Go back to verse 35. It says that I am the bread of life. And what does that mean? Whoever, anyone, no matter what your story is, comes to me, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me, drinks of me? No, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Saying, I will be your satisfaction. Why? Because he's the bread of life, eternal life. Don't forget this. Eternal life is not just your ticket to heaven. Eternal life starts here and now. Jesus said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that you know God. And so that changes your day now. That changes your life now. It does last for all of eternity. And what he's saying here when he says, you'll never thirst again, you'll never hunger again, is that I am your source of satisfaction. But you've got to come to me if he's not then we're lost going after everything else in this world. Whether it's your job, whether it's another person, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a goal, whether it's sin, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, like we're going after all these things that'll never satisfy us. And Jesus is going, I can, I'm God. I made you. I know what satisfies you. I am your satisfaction. That's what it means that he's the bread of life. It was John Piper that made popular, at least to me, I know other people have used the phrase, the phrase Christian hedonism. So it's kind of like an oxymoron if you know what hedonism is. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. In fact, if you look up online a definition of hedonism, uh, you'll find this as one of the first ones that pops up. The pursuit of pleasure, and then it says, sensual self-indulgence. In philosophy, the theory of hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and proper aim of the human life. Now, many of us, when we hear hedonism that do know what it means, think of overindulgence, whether that's food or sex or in entertainment, like all kinds of different ways. And we think that's what hedonism is. And so the idea of Christian hedonism sounds like an oxymoron. Like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, really big, small stuff. Like, what are you talking about? Does that make sense? Government intelligence. Have you been to the DMV? Like, nothing makes sense, right? Like, so Christian hedonism. And you're like, those words don't go together. Piper's also known for making this statement famous. God's most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. In other words, it's not this work that we do to try and muster up and show how great God is. No, if we delight in him, if we would enjoy him, if we'd be satisfied in him, then our lives would glorify him because that's what we've been designed to do. I was listening to him preach about receiving Jesus uh, this week and I posted on my Facebook page. Let me share a quote with you uh, that he shared. It goes along the lines of this idea. It'll be on the screen. It says, we don't just receive Jesus in a saving way when we receive him as a ticket out of hell or into heaven. He's not a ticket. He's a treasure. He's not a ticket to heaven. He is heaven. He's what makes heaven heaven. Then he goes on to talk about, he travels around the world speaking. He says, it's a devastating question when I go around and ask groups, what if you could go to heaven someday and you'd have perfect health, perfect mental presence, no depression anymore, all the friends you want there, every kind of leisure you can imagine, but Jesus was not there. Would that be okay? He goes on. And it's scary how many people think, that's kind of what I thought heaven was. That's not what heaven is. Jesus is heaven. 
If you're trying to receive Jesus as a way to get what you want, but not him, you're not receiving Jesus, you're using Jesus. Which is the very thing that people in this passage were doing and why Jesus would not allow them to make him king by force. What Jesus wants with you is a love relationship with you. That you would delight in him, not fulfill duties for him. I remember, it was about 10 years ago, um, I was struggling big time with anxiety. And so some of you here uh, that struggle with that, my heart goes out to you, uh, especially because I understand what you're going through. Uh, I was on medication. I was uh, going to a counselor twice a week. I've shared this with our church about 10 years ago when it happened and uh, working with some of the elders, trying to figure out if I even should be a pastor uh, still, if I could be a pastor and struggle like this. And I knew the, the church pat answers and things like that, but um, I would preach, preach, them, preach grace, preach love, but hadn't experienced it. And uh, I remember one day I was in my office. I don't know what your relationship with God is like and what, how you pray and what the communication is like, but I was just kind of talking to him as I was doing some other things and uh, trying to pray continually. And as we were having this conversation, there's sometimes where God speaks to my heart and I'm like, is that me? Is that God? But there's like sometimes when it's like, it's clear, it's him. And it's one of those moments. And he just asked me a question. How much do you love Ella? Ella's my oldest daughter. How much do you love Ella? In that moment, I was like, oh, I just, I was like every emotion I had, I could pour. Like, I love Ella so much. I would give everything for her. I'd do anything for her. Like I would, I'd die for her. Like I would do whatever. What do you mean? How much do I love Ella? And then, and then as I was expressing that, he said, what do you want her to do when she grows up? It's about 10 years ago. So I don't, I don't know. She'd be a great missionary. She's smart. She can learn lots of stuff, adapt. I said, She'd be a good lawyer. She can argue. It's like, I don't, she's a good artist. I don't. And then I just said, I don't care. Like, as long as she loves your son Jesus, I actually don't care what she does. And then that's when he broke me. Because he said, that's how I feel about you. I didn't realize we were talking about me. So that's how I feel about you. I just want you to love my son Jesus. And so I knew at that moment I didn't have to be a pastor. And that was so freeing to me because... To be candid with you, the, the reason I was a pastor up to that moment was because I thought, well, Jesus died for me. He did everything for me. I'm going to try and do the most I can possibly do for him. And to my perception, that was being a pastor. And so I was being a pastor out of a duty. I was trying to repay a debt. Jesus doesn't want you to pay him a debt. He paid the debt at the cross. You don't need to repay that debt somehow through your life. You'd never be like, what you would do is such, so inadequate. It's like somebody paid off a million dollar debt and you're like, here, I got 18 cents. Jesus doesn't need you to pay a debt to him. He wants to be a delight to you. He is your satisfaction. And so when he says, I am the bread of life, I'm not asking you if, if you agree with the statement, but does your life testify that he is your source of satisfaction? Do you, do you enjoy him? Do you delight in him? Is he satisfying to you? Or are you looking for satisfaction everywhere else? Is he your salvation? Is he your security? Is he your satisfaction? That's how you answer, yes, he is the bread of life. Let's pray. This is a bigger decision than cutting a wire on a bomb. So, Father, we need you to come and supernaturally do a work in our hearts in this moment. Will your spirit move throughout this room? Will you speak to hearts? Will you change lives? Will you change minds? There are some people that think that their sin is better than you. Father, would you change their mind in this? Would you have them repent of that and turn to you for satisfaction? There's some people here that until they heard this message and heard what Piper said about a ticket to heaven, always thought that your son Jesus was a ticket to heaven. God, I pray that you would make your son a treasure in their hearts. And if they're not saved, because they've been believing in the wrong Jesus, that today would be the moment of salvation. Not because they need to work or pray better or do something different than before. Because they need to come to your son Jesus for the first time. 
And Father, if there are those here that have been living an insecure Christian life, I pray you give them peace. I pray you give them comfort. I pray they would rest in their souls with you. If there are those of us here that have, have forsaken you and turned from you, would you draw us back? Would you show the fruit of repentance in our lives? Would you bring us to you? And before I even conclude this prayer, I just want to let you know we're going to sing a song here as a church body. If you want to pray with someone, we're going to have some people off to the side. They'll have little lanyards on that say, I can pray. They'd love to pray with you if you want to pray with someone. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that to experience life change. But we want you to know that it's available to you. There's people within your church family that would love to pray with you through whatever's going on in your life. It might have nothing to do with what I said in this sermon. Or maybe you want to trust Jesus as your Savior. You go and talk to one of those people. They're going to be available to you. And Father, I, I thank you or continue to move and work in our lives. God, I pray for people at home that are watching in their living room, Father, that you would just speak to their heart, go and invade their lives, transform their lives. Those that are here, move in our midst as we sing this song. I think it's different than we were when we sang it the first time today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.